Ruchem Aboyim to the ninth in a continuing series of lectures on Rabbi Soloveitchik's Emergence of Ethical Man. This Shia, this lecture will actually conclude the book itself, the work itself. The final chapter in the book, in the final chapter of the book, Rabbi Soloveitchik, in fact, actually the final part of the final chapter of the book, deals with the revelation at Sinai, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, and the Ten Commandments. And many of the ideas which Rabbi Soloveitchik has developed um, in these um, in the book, which we've discussed for eight shiurim, eight lectures, they actually come to a climax in the um, in what is called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Gilui Matan Torah at Sinai. Now, as a little bit of a um, introduction, Rabbi Soloveitchik actually discusses the two aspects of what the Torah denotes as so far as the meaning of the word melech, king, when applied to God, when applied to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, Soloveitchik understands that the notion of melech does not only um, mean, as he explains this in page 195, a melech meaning a ruler or an autocrat, who, as I'm quoting the Rav, exercises control and power over something, which is kingship and a cosmic category. Um, the entire relationship between God and his creation, with a capital H, expresses royal dominion. But in addition, malchus and melech actually are a political concept. That is, and I'm quoting by Soloveitchik on page 196, God is a political ruler wielding power over human beings who accept his authority. God seen within the framework of the state is Melech. The old concept of Melech should be understood in a political sense. God is the king of a chosen society. We should not equate this rule with an overlordship or autocracy. The divine kingdom is constitutionally regulated and freely accepted. The term covenant itself excludes any tyranny. The, ter- the tyrant does not reach any contract with his subjects. In other words, basically, there's a concept of Melech that God is autocratic, and there's a concept of Melech that, in a certain sense, God, Kiviyochol, is elected, and is part of the community. And Soloveitchik, um, in fact, actually says, uh, based upon the Pasuk in Devarim, Vahibi Shulan Melech, and he emphasizes is that God is a king Israel, and not over Israel. So basically, in the concept of kingship, concept of royalty, we have actually a fusion of actually two concepts, a fusion of the autocratic um, cosmic concept and a fusion of what we call the ethical concept, that God's position as a king is that he has an ethical relationship with his subjects. And that's the concept of what's called the covenant of the brisk. And that's what Rabbi Soloveitchik wants to say, Utruas Melech Boy, the Pasuk, the verse in Devarim, that the Hebrew term Tuas Melech should be understood as a theocomradeship or a theopolitia. A God man community autocracy is excluded if Malchus is to be understood as a political concept. Okay, so in other words, what Rasulavajik has done is taken the same concept we have, we saw with Avoma Vino, that God was a comrade, and he's actually given this actually political meaning in terms of a political um, state or political community. So you have these two concepts of God. God is an autocratic um, ruler 
who has full sovereignty without the necessarily consent of his constituents. And then we have a what's more of a ethical concept of kingship where God's power is granted to him by his subjects and therefore he's a king within a community. And basically this theme, ontology versus ethics, comradeship versus um, submission, so this concept is actually a, a further expression of this. Now, this notion, this new notion of kingship, this no notion, no notion of royalty, as God is a comrade king, the ethical aspect of sovereignty, is actually, in fact, revealed, right, at Hal Sinai, and this is where Soloveitchik understands the Decalogue, the Aserus Hadibrois, the Ten Commandments, which are revealed at Sinai. And that's what he says on page 198, in a section which is entitled The Ten Commandments, the idea of God as leader as a plural king, as a plural king intelligently accepted and submitted to is seen in the revelation at Sinai. The Ten Commandments are unique because of their ethical character. Now, what is the ethical character of the Ten Commandments of the Aserus Hadibrois? So my Soloveitchik um, mentions two things. Number one, says my Soloveitchik, the absence of the cult element is singular. Not one commandment refers to worship and ceremony. The ethos pervades the whole scene of Sinaitic revelation. In other words, nowhere in Sinaitic is there a command to worship God, or how to worship God. That's called the cultic element. Those of you who know archaeology and biblical criticism are well familiar with the topic. And number two, Rosalovechik points out the fact that the commandments are actually divided between what's called um, man-God commandments, but other than and between what's called man-man commandments, but other than So in other words, clearly the um, the half of the Yisrael de boys deal with relationships between two equals. And therefore, because of this, somehow the, the overall message of the Yisrael Sadeh boys is that, in fact, Ben Adam the Chavero, in a certain sense, mirrors or parallels Ben Adam the Bokai. And this also expresses, is expressive of this new notion of royalty, of kingship, where, in fact, actually God's sovereignty is ethical and not autocratic. Okay? And that's what Arsalevichik says, right? Man's contact with God, I'm on page 198, man's contact with God should be seen against the backdrop of human divine society. Even his kingdom should be understood as a political reality located within society. Okay, so that's Abbasalavetra. Um, okay, so this is actually what is in fact um, the, um, the significance of the Asales of Debrais. And in this sense, Abbasalavetra actually brings the work to a close. The work to a close. Um, um, this, in fact, actually is at the very end of the book, page 203 and 204, where Salavajic somehow has a summary of the principles. And the last principle, which is number nine, or the last point, which is number nine, where Salavajic says that the theopolitical personality, which asserts itself in the state society, that is dedicated to a single objective, to live in comradeship with God and to freely abide by his will. There's not only a covenant between God and man, but a socio-political bond as well. That's the ethical aspect. The religious ethos assumes a legal aspect. The subjective ethos becomes an objective moral law, and he puts in parentheses Moses at the revelation at Sinai. Okay, wading through the heavy English-Germanic terminology, 
in principle, Rabbi Soloveitchik concludes his unity of what we would call the God of creation, the God of ethics, the cosmic versus the um, the um, the cosmic versus the ethical, between God as a ruler and God as a comrade, um, the ontology and ethical concepts which Rabbi Soloveitchik has run through the entire book, ruminated through the entire book, which we spoke about last week was actually the way he interpreted the, the Kabbalah. This reaches, this is revealed to the world in the Aser Sadibwe's at the Maimon of Sinai, at the Seat of Revelation, where this was revealed to the entire Jewish people. It's rather interesting that in the last page, on the last page, Rabbi Soloveitchik addresses himself to biblical criticism. Now, this is not the only place where actually Rosalovechik has addressed himself. For example, on page 193, he speaks about that the Bible critics, advocates of the Kenite hypothesis claim that if the God had been the God of Israel before Moses, a covenant would have been superfluous. And of course, Rosalovechik comes to, and he actually calls Buber, and he comes to, um, comes to, um, to argue, or at least to, um, to modify that. Um, the notion of archaeology is in fact actually um, comes up time and time again in the work. Um, Soloveitchik actually, in fact, when he speaks about um, Avram Avinu, right, also makes reference to, I guess, the state of archaeology at that time. And there um, he speaks about um, um, he speaks about um, the 2,000-year-long attachment to a desert land. Um, um, actually, um, the... Um, I haven't... since it's not over here. Um, I forget where it says. He has... Um, he refers to, um, to the... Um, oh, yeah. On page um, 152... And page 153, he speaks about um, um, ancient um, Egyptian documents and actually um, ancient customs. Um, in fact, actually on page 151, we know from many reliable archaeological sources that such nomadic civilizations clashed many a time with the urbanized civilizations of Mesopotamia and Egypt. Um, Soloveitchik, as well as being very much aware of the theory of evolution, and by being aware of um, of the uh, the philosophy of Bergson, which is based upon the theory of evolution. Um, in addition to this, Soloveitchik too is very very much aware of archaeological evidence. And in other words, the book is a quintessential twentieth century work of a person who is not only aware of the the philosophy and the science that is concurrent at his times, but is also aware of the fact that there is archaeology and, in fact, little criticism, which is also concurrent at his time. And this actually is actually the last subject matter of, of the book itself. There, um, on page um, 199, he speaks about, I'm going to um, quote from the book. He says here, the double account of the covenant renewal at Sinai 
as let, and there he refers to Exodus 19 to 20 and Exodus 24. Has led many radical. Someone is cleaning the windows outside, so I hope that this is audible. Is it audible? Okay, fine. Um, what could you do? Just as life imitates Torah, just as Rosalovich was aware of the concurrent biblical archaeological, um, there's the time we're aware of the cleaning person, cleaning done, done, being done outside of this undisclosed location in Yerushalayim. In any case, Rosalovich says the double account of the covenant renewal at Sinai has led many radical Bible critics to the assertion that there are two reports about the Sinaitic revelation and that the Decalogue is a product of a later period. The original Decalogue must have dealt with cultic norms. But this distinction can be understood differently. Where Soloveitchik understands there is no doubt that when Moses delivered his first message to Israel about the forthcoming revelation, the Jews, Egyptian slaves, conversing with magical practices and ceremonials, understood their new relationship to God exclusively in terms of cult. They never expected a Decalogue as unique as the one embodying a strange ethos which was to substitute for the cultic relationship. The narrative of the event itself, both in Exodus and Deuteronomy, emphasizes the fear that overcame the people during the unfolding of the revelation. Of course, it is partially attributable to the nominous experience, numinous experience, therefore why should we die, for this great fire will consume us. Yet, to some extent, they were also horrified by the strange and comprehensible content of the revealed message. Apparently, Moses found another covenant performance indispensable. He demanded the acceptance of the covenants under a new aspect, the divine human aspect. And then Rabbi Salavajan goes on to quote the section at the end of Pasha's Mishpatim, where Meshachabbeinu brings the Torah to the Jewish people, or the Sefer Abris, and they say, Nasa Venishma, and Meshachabbeinu um, sprinkles the altar with brings the altar, and sprinkles it with blood, etc., etc. Now, here, Rabbi Soloveitchik is admitting to the fact that, in fact, actually, that the Ten Commandments, the Asel Zadibois, represent a certain advance in what you might call cultic society. Namely, that, in fact, um, he emphasizes both the one in Shemais, the one in Pashish Yisrael, and in Devarim, in Veschanan, are coming to emphasize that the Asel Sedibois represents, in a certain sense, a new type of relationship, a new type of relationship um, of Akkadosh Baruch Hu with the Jewish people, in contradistinction to what was normally understood as relationship between other gods with a small g and peoples, right, heretofore. So, in other words, Rabbi Salabetchik understands that really with the Chumash, text of the Chumash, the Asels HaDibos, the Asels represents the first text, uh, the, the text of the Chumash, the Asels HaDibos establishes a text of the Chumash, which actually pre- presents us with, in fact, actually a new relationship. Now, the ideas of the biblical critics is, of course, that based upon the fact that there appear to be two Decalogues, one in Shemais and one in Devarim. And of course, they understand that even the one in Shemais has probably Chas been doctored to accommodate what might have been a, a prior Decalogue, and they find evidence for this. Um, but in fact, actually, um, the very, very notion 
of a what you would call a, a decalogue is actually a very, very later thing and is not really inherent within the text of the Chumash, like most of the text of the Chumash itself. However, the fact is that Rabbi Soloveitchik's point is actually the subject of a very interesting book, which I picked up actually a few years ago. Actually, I have to thank um, my Talmud, Ruven Smolin, for having actually ordered the book for me and sat on my table one day when I came into Warrensburg in the base Medrash, and the book is actually called The Invention of Hebrew by Seth Sanders. Seth Sanders. Seth L. Sanders. Seth L. Sanders wants to advance a very, very interesting thesis. I mean, he calls it The Invention of Hebrew, but Professor Sanders wants to advance a very interesting thesis is that the Chumash, the Hebrew Bible, was in fact actually the first work to use what he calls the vernacular when a king or when a god addresses his subject matters, meaning is that in contradistinction to legal systems before that, or even writings before that, where the writing was not actually expressive was actually not the expressions that were used by the way people spoke, was actually very specific messages that kings used to transmit either between themselves or to their servants. But rather, the Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh, introduces a new form of writing which actually uses the vernacular instead of an official royal language, and in so doing, by using the vernacular, it expresses what you would call a I-thou relationship between the ruler and the subjects, or between God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the Jewish people, where in fact God addresses them as a community, and as people, and not as purely subjects, or just expresses commands. So in other words, according to um, Professor Sanders, right, um, the very, very language of the Chumash, right, is the first way, and I'm quoting from page 7, is how, how um, the Chumash begins, speaks in a deliberately local way and addresses a people, not a king or his subjects, but is actually represents a shift in communication and argues for seeing it as a major historical event. He goes on and says is that the Chumash represents a community that is addressed in its own words and called into existence through the circulation of texts. The Torah's narrative represents both its own acceptance and rejection, presupposing and imagining the reactions of both its audience and the God it voices. The Hebrew Bible became foundational to a politics of recognition where people saw themselves addressed by texts that called them together. So, Professor Sanders wants to explain that the Chiddush, the novel part of the Chumash itself and of Lashon HaKadosh and certainly of the Salsa Diplos is that it expresses a new form of communication between God and his people, between the king and his people the king, the Melech, Melech Malchem Lachem and between Klai Yisrael. It's interesting that this interpretation of um, Professor Sanders, in fact, 
runs very, very much against what you would call the traditional um, understanding of those who rejected the Bible, people like Hobbes and Spinoza, especially Spinoza. It's interesting that Spinoza's work, of re- works of rejection of traditional Judaism, um, actually divide into two areas. One is biblical criticism, and Spinoza understood that the Bible was actually just a set of laws that were meant for a specific society, and since that society therefore is no longer exists, is no longer viable, therefore the laws become basically defunct. But Spinoza also was actually had a political agenda that in fact he looked to further the understanding of what's called a liberal democracy, in contradistinction to autocratic or totalitarian and monarchical rule which existed at his time in history. So in other words, the um, work and the writings of Spinoza is agenda-based in the sense that he saw everything that was wrong in society actually in the Chumash itself. And hence the biblical critical nature of his, um, of, his, of, his, um, of his methodology and his political agendas become actually one and the same. What Professor Sanders is saying is in fact no, on the contrary. The Bible, the Chumash, actually represents exactly the opposite of what Spinoza thought, but really, but really was in fact, I won't say it was a surge, an expression of liberal democracy, but it sought to establish a community that autonomously accepted God as part of a communal, a community, a, com- a communal act of, you know, of acceptance of rule, and through that, the Chumash ushers in an end to autocratic rule, which was not only the um, the social rule of the day, but also expressed in the manner of writing, as archaeology has revealed in cuneiform, etc., etc., to a type of a language which is in fact most expressive of this type of what we call ethical rule, which Rabbi Soloveitchik speaks about in the emergence of ethical man. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire book of Professor Sanders. I, I don't know if I could recommend it to you, but in any case, you should be aware, made way aware of it that a person who perhaps even is a scholar, nonetheless recognizes the very, very nature of the Chumash, the nature of the language, and therefore the relationship that is expressed in the Chumash, in the text of the Chumash, between God and the Jewish people, as in fact actually expressing, embodying the very point that Rabbi Soloveitchik makes. So I think it's a very, very interesting, and I think a very interesting um, um, remark and point to be aware of that Rabbi Soloveitchik's, what you would call philosophical understanding of the Asar Sadebrois, which of course is based, and he does bring, you know, um, proof or sources from his understanding of certain pesukim, is actually, in certain sense, inherent in the entire text of the Chumash itself. So the Aserah Sadibres, the Ten Commandments, in fact embodies the most central theme of the Chumash, of the Torah, Shetzivah Meshe Rabbeinu, Belashen HaKodesh. This is, in fact, actually an interesting thing of Rabbi Actually, his point is something which is, seems to be at the, the, um, the cutting edge of what we call political theory, sociology, archaeology, and in fact, biblical and scholarship. So, um, 
I find that um, this, in fact, actually brings us to, in fact, actually a very interesting idea that the Rabbi Soloveitchik's work, which, of course, is concerned with process, whether it be when he spoke about Maiseberechus in the first chapter of the creation, the, um, the evolution of man into an ethical being, but actually, it turns out that the notion of process and evolution does not, in fact, actually limit itself to what's called natural processes, but there's actually a social and communal, um, that we spoke about it from Avinu Meshabeno, there's also an evolution of ethics itself. We see from Avinu to Meshabeno, as we spoke about in the last lecture. But actually, Rosalavechik is aware of the fact that the Chumash actually represents in itself an evolution in God's revelation to man. And that the text of the Chumash is expressive of, in fact, actually what you would see the, um, the, um, the ethical pinnacle that the Torah and that Judaism, right, represented within the background of world and ancient history, right, in the context of where the Chumash was revealed at Al-Sina. Now, with this ending, with this ending, we in fact, come to the conclusion, really, of the book. And it's very difficult, perhaps, to summarize what the main points of the book is, because, after all, these are notes. It is written in a book form, but we don't know if the Rabbi Shabbat wanted to publish the book as such. The difference between wanting to publish it and writing private notes is very, very simple. When a person publishes a book, then what he says is what he meant, and what he meant is what he says. We're excluding Strauss, of course, and different um, um, exo-theories of Maimonides, but we assume that what a person means to say is what he, what he says, and what he doesn't mean to say is not what he says. But when a person you know, writes notes for himself, it could possibly these are not thoughts that the person really wanted to share with other people. Um, whether he meant to be published, not meant to publish, whether his, these were his thoughts and not his thoughts that he wanted to express to other people, that's only, people can debate this for the next number of years. No one will ever actually be able to bring any proof either way or another way. I think it's purely hypothesis and conjecture. And um, because of this, I don't think it's really worth, you know, um, worth really focusing on these questions. The question that really, I think, really needs to be raised, though, is given the fact, as I said before, that is the cat is out of the box, and somehow, by some type of a fluke in history, we would call it actually Ashkochapotis, providence, then the fact is, what can we conclude about these thoughts of Rabbi Soloveitchik? What can we learn from them? Can we go further from them? Do we have to ignore them? And I think these are really pressing questions. Um, maybe in Mirza Hashem, we will devote the next lecture to this. But in any case, for an undisclosed and very noisy location in Yerushalayim Yerushalayim Kodesh, until next week, Kol Tov.